Everyone is a character. All characters are Tatiana. Conclusion, Tatiana is everyone. You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And this episode, we're going to be talking about stuff from season three. So if you have not seen up through the end of season three, there could be some spoilers for you, just as fair warning. And we have a guest with us again. It is the guest from the previous episode. (laughs) Elizabeth. No, no, no. Stephanie's friend, Elizabeth. (laughs) Call her by her right name. (laughs) That's right. I need my full identifying here. Stephanie's friend, Dr. Elizabeth. Thank you. How about that? That's best. (laughs) So what are we talking about today, Chris? We are talking about dream sequences. Mostly we're going to talk about the ones from season three, but I also wanted to mention the one from the first season, which is arguably a dream sequence. We don't really know. It's, It's the sequence of Sarah and the medical tests. Sort of a, uh, I don't know, a, a dramatization of the experience of the medical testing, I guess. Yeah, because yeah, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the dream sequences from season three. Obviously, those were fairly important sequences. They open the season, and then the one that Sarah has in episode three is 306. Uh, cat, oh, shoot. Certain agony of the battlefield. I remembered. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, those are fairly important sequences. And I was trying to think if we had seen any other dream sequences previously. And the only one that Chris and I could come up with was that one in back in season one. I believe it's in episode five. Yeah, because they really don't use them frequently Mm -mm. or at least haven't before this. No, which is, I think, what made the season three dream sequences seem significant. Mm hmm. I wonder why they decided to do them. Well, I know in the video that they released sort of talking about the first dream sequence of the season, Graham was talking about wanting to open this season with kind of a bang, right? Because they, you know, obviously first season, woman gets hit by a train, pretty memorable. You know, second season too, there's that whole shootout in the cafe Again, a pretty memorable sequence. So I think they were looking for something that would be a memorable beginning to the season. And I don't know why exactly they settled on a dream sequence, but they did. Because they're they're shocking you with the happiness mm-hmm. that you know is wrong. Right. <laughs> it's like, this doesn't feel right for so many reasons, including the fact that it's too happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting. I went back and I watched Helena's, the little baby shower shower sequence at the beginning of the season. And the first shot that we get is of Helena opening a box and looking down into a box. And I I know that I've rewatched the episode before this, but, and maybe I made this comment before and I'm just forgetting. But of course, the fact is the shot, the, the scene opens with her opening a box. And what do we learn at the end of the scene? That Helena is in fact actually trapped inside of a box. So mm-hmm. I think that's just a clever little visual cue that they included that doesn't necessarily mean anything to you the first time around, but second time around, you think, oh. Hmm. Well, because the perspective is from inside the box, too. Exactly. Which is a nice touch. Well, Helena herself is so hard to read in so many other scenes, like maybe getting into her head with the dream sequence is the best way that we have to communicate what's actually ticking in her brain, you know, 
Maybe that's the reason that we've, we're subtle, suddenly getting a dream sequence, especially this extensive of a dream sequence, so late in the series, because finally we want to know what's going on inside of her head. That's a really good point, because that's the big, I think, reveal of this scene, is seeing how Helena sees the other characters, which are all these really exaggerated versions of our main characters, which is hilarious, but appropriate for Helena, I think. But at the same time, you know, she's such a hard nut to crack. She's a strange character. You don't entirely know what she's thinking when she's doing some things. I think it is revelatory that we get to see the our other characters from her perspective. Right. I think it does fit right in with the way they've been telling Helena's story. First season, she's terrifying. She's this unknown <laughs> indeed quantity in in the series, and yeah, gradually becoming more relatable. Second season, we are fully on Helena's side, mm-hmm. and now third season, opening up with like, okay, here's what she really is thinking about, or what's really in her head. So, so yeah, that makes sense to me. And we're also starting in what seems to be. Helena's idealized world. And I think it's important to note who is there, right? You have the main clone club, Felix, and food. So, (laughs) (laughs) and Kira. And Kira. Excuse me. I thought I said Kira, but yes. Sisters, Felix, Kira, food. Like, Helena's good if that's what's around her. Basics. Family and food. That's all, that's all anyone needs, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And I just, I love the exaggerated versions that we get to see of the main characters. Absolutely. I mean, (laughs) Sarah just head to toe, black and leather and sunglasses. (laughs) She looks far cooler, I think, than Sarah normally does. (laughs) She looks like a biker. She does. She does. And now we know that Stephanie thinks bikers look cool. (laughs) It's the Ray-Bans. thinks bikers look cool, too. (laughs) (laughs) Aviator sunglasses. I meant to say aviator. I said Ray-Bans. Sorry. It's the aviator sunglasses. I just, uh, I have a thing for aviators. Anyway, we won't get into it. I'll be a while. So, (laughs) noted. And now we're learning a lot about Stephanie. (laughs) So, okay, the thing that I find interesting is like, okay, Allison, obviously, Mrs. Homemaker, perfectly coordinated outfit. You know, everything's just so. Sarah makes sense. Stepped right out of a sitcom from the 50s. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) You know, Kira's little princess outfit makes sense to me. And then we get to Felix, who is wearing like a a rugby polo jumper type thing. I don't know. He he looks like a, a slightly less colorful version of like his yachting outfit that he wore <laughs> when he sneaks into Allison's party. And it's just interesting to me that that's the clothes that Helena picked for him. Hmm. I'm trying to remember if she ever saw him in something like that, because that's the it thing. could make sense in the sense that that's what he wore to Allison's house when he was being suburban. Mm-hmm. So, But I don't, I don't know. She didn't see him in those clothes, is the thing. Yeah. Not that we know about. Yeah. <laughs> I think she was dying or very close to death at that point. So I think she was on the ship. <laughs> Maybe she saw surveillance photos. I don't know. <laughs> Work with me, Stephanie. <laughs> She just has a mental polo that she puts people in. And she doesn't know what else to dress them in. <laughs> I mean, she was staying at Felix's for a while. Mm-hmm. So maybe she saw it in his closet. I don't know. Or is that just, that's what she thinks gay men all dress like. Like she knows Felix is gay. <laughs> the default polo. 
<laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't think so, just because she did spend time with Felix. Mm-hmm. But that and that is not common clothing for him. So that's why I find it interesting that that's why that's what he's dressed as. Again, that's why I'm thinking maybe in the context of Allison's house. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then, of course, we we have to mention the fact that Kasima is wearing the Ukrainian folk costume. <laughs> like, <laughs> why Kasima? <laughs> I'm half convinced that they did this entire sequence so they could put Kasima in that outfit. I think they just wanted Tatiana in all those outfits, you know? <laughs> like, probably. Just, probably true. They were just like, we, we have these costumes from when we were trying to figure out the characters, you know? They're a little more over the top. Let's let's go for it. See what happens. Because <laughs> obviously the whole, oh, I'm way better because of science or whatever she says line and then winks over her shoulder. Like, I can see where that is Helena's extrapolation of Cosima. <laughs> but the fact that she put Cosima in that outfit is interesting to me just because... I, that's not something Kasima normally wears. <laughs> like, it's not even an exaggerated version of what Kasima normally wears. Yeah. Do you think, I don't know. Do you think in Helena's dream world, just somebody needs to be in that costume? Just, you know. <laughs> Probably. And, I mean, Kasima looked good in it. She did. So she and did. I was also struck, I mean, this is related to the costume, of how very Ukrainian this little scene is, right? She's surrounded with all of these foods whose names I cannot remember. I apologize. But I heard them and I thought, that sounds like that's supposed to be Ukrainian food. And it there's a version of Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys playing which has wouldn't it be nice in english but the rest of the lyrics are in something other than ling- in english is that ukrainian like it's a very ukrainian scene and it's it's more ukrainian than i think any other scene in the series so it's interesting to see sort of uh, helena's culture to be so represented in this scene or at least trying i'm not saying that's accurate <laughs> if there's any ukrainian people listening i'm not saying that this is like 100% <laughs> accurate <laughs> Was it oxtail? I want to say it might be oxtail Ox or something. Liver? There was a, something that that Felix it was, was. It was ox something. Yeah, I think it was oh. liver. Okay. <laughs> my my mother makes an amazing oxtail soup. You guys, it's great. <laughs> oxtail soup is good. Apropos of nothing, it's fantastic. <laughs> good to know. So good in the winter. Oh, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Another thing that I noted when it came to how the characters were relating to each other was the fact that this is like Helena's little dream world, right? And there's still this moment where Sarah is clearly Helena's keeper because Sarah like says to her, aren't you going to say thank you? And then mm-hmm. it, to Allison and then Helena looks over and says, thank you, Sestra. So I, I just thought that was kind of sweet that Maybe that indicates that Helena kind of likes that aspect of their relationship. I would think so. I mean, again, I think this whole dream sequence reflects Helena's sort of, I don't know, her appreciation of having her newfound family. Yeah. And food. (laughs) (laughs) So much food. Oh, my gosh. Felix is making food. Allison's bringing out, like, muffins or cupcakes or something. Cosima brings out a whole basket of food there's so much food oh my gosh this episode is making me so hungry (laughs) (laughs) so obviously i think the the big thing that interrupts the idealized world is this emergence of pupak from her tummy and this is where we get the introduction of pupak who is an important sidekick character for helena's storyline in the third season 
And when I was going back and I was looking at these two visions or these two dream sequences side by side, I'm like, of course, it's our mirror twins who both have dream sequences in season three. Mm -hmm. And they're also in similar situations when they have these dreams, because Helena's just been captured by Castor. She's in a box. She, you know, she's like abandoned by herself all alone. And that is exactly the position that Sarah is in when she has her dream sequences later in the season. This is after Helena has left her. She's trapped by Castor. She feels abandoned. I mean, she doesn't even know that if Paul is going to help her. Right. And we do know that Pupak is essentially Helena's survival mechanism. Exactly. And that's what Sarah's trying to do when she's having these fever dreams is she's trying to survive this blood injection that they've given her. Hmm. It is interesting, Sarah's visions that we get in 306, because I'm trying to remember, it It starts with the vision, right? It does. And and that was the other thing that I thought was interesting. In Helena's dream, she starts surrounded by people, and then she's alone, and that's when Pupak emerges. In Sarah's vision, she starts all alone, and then she follows Kira to where she sees Rudy and herself on the bed. So I thought that was an interesting contrast between the two. Right. But they both kick off an episode. Yeah. Sarah's, I think, is more typical of what we get in TV dream sequences, perhaps. Right. You know, the whole, you're alone in a place that's familiar, and then you see somebody and chase somebody somewhere, and it's to another location that is also familiar but wrong somehow, because they've got the the tent that they'd built earlier in the season. In Felix's apartment, yeah. And that leads to some you know, medical room where it shouldn't. Yeah. And creepy, gross Rudy licking her hand while they transfuse blood. Ew. Yeah. I'm curious about that first one, because there's kind of two fever dream sequences in Certain Agony of the Battlefield. And in this first one, like I mentioned, Sarah's alone, and then she sees Kira, and she follows Kira. And there's this really... There's this great part where Kira's like skipping and happy in this like idealized version of Kira. And then she has this great line where she's like, come on, mom. I'm, <laughs> I just, I, I love it whenever Kira is just annoyed with Sarah. <laughs> it's like, and suddenly Kira's a teenager. Yes. That's right. <laughs> but then they get out into the middle of the, you know, caster compound where she sees the tent. And there's this really creepy shot of Kira. It's kind of low into the side and kind of looking it has her at a weird angle and it's very a very arch villain type of shot. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that's supposed to be communicating something about Kira that we don't know yet or just that it's communicating, oh yeah, this is a dream sequence things are weird. I choose to believe the latter. Well, if if we're thinking of it as being from Sarah's perspective and giving us a a way of looking at characters as as Sarah sees them and the way that we're thinking about seeing characters the way Helena sees them, then maybe it's just not that that she's afraid of Kira, but that so much fear surrounds Kira's fate for Sarah that that like Hmm. there's there's so much going on there that she's put so much, you know, weight and energy and love into what's going on with Kira that like in in a dream, there's some fear around her just because, you know, oh no, there's so much potential for terrible things here, you know? I'd buy that. Interesting. It's just a thought. (laughs) But then later, I think the dream sequence that is probably one that we as fans think is more significant, the one involving Beth, 
it's not Kira who's there kind of leading her toward that interaction with Beth. It's Charlotte, the other Lita clone that we've met who was being raised by Marion Bowles. I think that was an interesting choice. And I'm not entirely sure why they made the switch, unless it is because it is clone-related. Mm. Thoughts? Well, I- I'm not sure why make the choice, but but there's um, there is something to being led by the s- the children, you know, the right. smallest clones. I- I'm not sure about the switch from Kira to Charlotte, but I mean, I think the idea that the smallest, most innocent of our clones are the ones leading them through these dreams is significant in some way, and also linking children with Sarah in a ve- or in a very mm. distinct way. I don't know. It's interesting though that they had Charlotte come back to make this appearance. Mm-hmm. Also interesting in that this reappearance of children links back to Helena's dream, mm-hmm. which was about her baby shower. So yeah, exactly. And her terrifying not baby. That was a scorpion. Uh, <laughs> I just wasn't going to mention that. <laughs> the phrase terrifying not baby is just... <laughs> That is, you're right. That's, that that's that deep. is the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> oh boy! So let's talk about this incredibly fraught, interesting scene between Sarah and Beth, who we weren't sure we ever were going to hear from again. I think it's interesting that she finds her waiting in Mrs. S's kitchen. She's she's got like tea on a tray. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on this? Well. Is they have it, the set already. <laughs> well, yeah, there's partly that, you know, maybe finding people that you know in unfamiliar places. Is there also a connection between Sarah just feeling like Mrs. Mrs. S's house is home and wanting to connect her clone sisters to home, you know? It, mm-hmm. it, but I think likely it's that they have the set. It seemed like an appropriate place <laughs> for them to have a little sit down and talk. Uh, but there could be, of course, more to it than just that. And we can always put more onto it, the choice, than there actually existed in the in the actual making of the choice by the creators. Right. I think you're right, though, that it is significant as, as a matter of being homey, a familial place. Because, I mean, Sarah never actually talked to Beth. Mm-mm. So I think there is something there where you know, having a conversation with her, trying to sort out all this stuff. She would want to meet her in a familiar place? Right, in a comfortable place, you know, mm-hmm. over tea. Sure. Somewhere where she's used to having a conversation of this depth with someone. You know, I can see mm-hmm. a lot more deep conversations having happened in Mrs. S's kitchen. True. And I find it really interesting that this is how we got to know more about Beth and what Beth thought was through this dream sequence, which makes it pretty much impossible for us to be sure that this is actually what Beth thought. (laughs) Right. Or if it's just Sarah's projection of what she has come to assume about Beth. Now, we do know that Sarah had found letters that Beth had written, Mm -hmm. but we don't know how much, if any of it, she read is the thing. Mm Mm-hmm. So I do wonder what it is that Sarah knows, what Sarah knows and how much she knows. 
she tells that story, Beth does, she tells that story about Paul moving in and how little that he had. Mm-hmm. And that feels like it's something she could have read maybe in a letter, but also something she could have surmised after learning what she knows now about Paul. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting, too, because the aforementioned letter, the one they were talking about, I believe was about Beth's feelings about Paul, right? Exactly. So it could be something, not necessarily that story, but a lot of this conversation, I think, could be perhaps traced back to that. And there's kind of a tense exchange between Beth and Sarah about Paul. Where Beth calls Paul a a liar and a grifter and says that he and Sarah are a good match. So I'm curious if this is a symptom of Sarah feeling a bit guilty for the relationship that she had with Paul, at least briefly. I do think most of this does stem from Sarah's guilt, not just over that, but over perhaps being inadvertently the leader of their little clone club group. So mm-hmm. all the all the bad things that have happened, feeling some responsibility for it, whether or not justified. So it kind of makes sense on some level that this is when she would want to talk to Beth because she's gotten so in over her head at this point, having you know been captured by Castor. She doesn't know what they're going to do with her. And I could see where why at this point in time she feels a connection back to Beth, who, while Sarah can't completely understand her reasons at this point, only knows that she seemed to be overwhelmed by her circumstances. So so the dream is her sorting out what was going on in Beth's mind, maybe to protect herself against taking a similar action. I'm not saying that Sarah is necessarily contemplating self-harm, but just that she's thinking about kind of, you know, how do we get out of this? How do we give up on this kind of situation? Is it possible? And like, but also trying to convince herself to stay in for the yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean... Sarah basically spends this entire episode near death. Right. In one way or another. And so maybe this is her negotiating, do I just give up? Because Mm. we see her fighting against whatever is happening to her. And maybe this is her brain considering, what if I just give up and let whatever is making me feel ill take me? And that is part of what is drawing her to think about Beth in this way. Maybe. Could be just trying to think about someone who is in a similar circumstance that as an audience, we don't have a lot of information around. And as Sarah doesn't have a lot of information either. So we don't have the same emotional weight as it would be if she was having this conversation or a different emotional weight, I should say, uh, if she were having this conversation with a character that we can talk to, right know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's almost a not quite blank slate, somebody that you can talk to that, it doesn't have to be a real dream figment where it's somebody like a, she could be literally talking to herself. I mean, it's a dream. You can do that. Um, but instead we get this character that represents for her, you know, this disturbing moment in her own life. And then the way that her identity unfolded for herself. And yeah, the fact that Sarah does have guilt towards Beth for, mm-hmm. you know, witnessing her suicide and then, essentially taking her place in the world Mm -hmm. for a while so yeah i guess that could make sense too right if if sarah's feeling like she might be near death 
perhaps trying to, I don't know, make amends in some way. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So do we want to read this conversation that, or sort of the, the ultimate piece of this conversation between Sarah and Beth? Because I think this is the really interesting piece that I don't know. That could be, I think, the direction for season four, it suggests, perhaps. <laughs> you never can tell with this yeah, show. Yeah. But I think it was a, a big thing that we kind of made a note of. Do you, do you right. want to be Sarah? I'll be Beth. <laughs> okay. 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 I let you jump. No, I jumped. I let myself get consumed by this thing. I killed myself because I couldn't understand it. Neither do I. You're starting to. I don't understand the why. Why did you take over my life, Sarah? For Kira. We do terrible things for the ones we love. Stop asking why. Start asking who, sister. The sister part always gets me. I know. Oh. I've got chills, you guys. I've got chills. <laughs> So the this this thing that it ends on, we do terrible things for the ones we love. Big theme of Orphan Black generally, particularly season three. Which is why we keep saying it. Yes. She tells her, stop asking why did they do the clone project. Start asking who. Implying that the clone project is a terrible thing something did for someone they loved, perhaps? Is this about the clone project? I don't know. That's I know. I know. There's many things it could be about. I'm just trying to parse it out. See what we get. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, because we do get the big reveal at the end of season three about Neolution being behind everything. So mm. it could be. It could very well be about the clone project. But that's my reading of it, perhaps, is that the clone project was started because it's the terrible thing someone did for someone that they loved. And she's encouraging Sarah to find out who is that person that somebody loved enough to do this terrible thing. Do you think the who is an individual or a group? I mean, that could be part of the, the right. ambiguity of the whole thing. Right. But I mean, does it necessarily mm -hmm. have to be an individual to do something terrible for someone they love? Or could it be a group that, has maybe not a particular, maybe not romantic love, but like they do this out of a particular obsession with or love for something. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. A country, a organization, you know, a group of people or an ideal, some sort of cause. Sure. People right. do all kinds of terrible things for causes they love, for not just people they love, but groups of people they love or countries they love or just ideas that they love yeah it definitely is an intriguing statement doesn't shed a whole lot of light <laughs> <laughs> well because it's one of those things as with all things orphan black really it's it's kind of like there are a lot of options as to interpretation or you know given the reveals of the end of the season it's like well could it be about susan duncan mm -hmm. i don't know yeah that's a good point we don't know yet. So it's possible this could be a guiding question for season four in unraveling the conspiracy more, but it's possible it has nothing to do with season four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have to say, I do find the who questions a lot more satisfying in the show than the why questions. Yeah. Why is pretty fuzzy, but once we figure out who, 
does different things, not just the clone project itself, but just all these different things. When we, once we figure out who the people are that are doing it, I, I do find that a lot more satisfying. Why is always kind of fuzzy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's true of probably most shows, right? And storytelling oh, yeah. in general, I'd mm-hmm. rather them tell the story of who than why, just because usually the who will explain the why. Mm-hmm. You know what sure. I mean? Because everybody has their own dumb reasons for doing whatever crazy thing they do. <laughs> yeah. Too true. You need some why there, but the who and the who being interesting and developed is more important, I think, than the why. Sure. Right. Well, well- Human beings are inconsistent, so we yeah. do we'll tell ourselves we're doing something for one reason, and but we're actually doing it for another reason. Or from the outside, you could look in at somebody else's actions and think they're doing it for a clear why, but then internally they're doing it for some other reason. So storytelling wise, it's much harder to talk about why, right. just because people aren't consistent. Right. But if we figure out who they are, then we can talk about what they're doing more clearly. Hmm. I, I should say the why without the who is, yeah. is sort of, it's irrelevant, Yeah, more or less, to me. Yeah. So, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, thank you, Elizabeth, for being here to talk about the dream sequences with us. We appreciate it. You're so very welcome. You guys are dreamy, as always. <laughs> <laughs> Aw. Aw. Thanks, and- Dr. Elizabeth. Aw. And please tell us what you thought about the dream sequences in season three. If you have any interesting thoughts, we'd love to hear them. You can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at tatianaiseveryone.com slash 94. You can send us an email to feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. You can call and leave a voicemail on our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. We are on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. And I just wanted to give a shout out. Thank you, Fred. And Tatiana's Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. You can find podcasts, our other podcasts about TV shows such as Lost Girl and Killjoys over at AskGenreTV.com. In this episode, Dream Felix's default polo was played by Tatiana Mislani. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>